We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, our host Sally Sue is interviewing architect H.Y. William Chan, who is a registered architect and counsellor at the City of Sydney. William discusses his background working as an architect before becoming a counsellor and how his architectural knowledge informs his work in the planning, regulatory and community engagement process. Let's jump in. Great pleasure to introduce today's speaker um, on our podcast, I'm Hearing Architecture Today. Today we're lucky enough to have Councillor H.Y. William Chan um, join us to chat about uh, the value of architects and really what he does day to day and how he makes an impact. Um, William is a Sydney architect, an urban planner and a recent fellow in sustainable cities with the UN advocating for youth and climate justice. Hi, William. Hi, Sally. How are you doing today? Really great. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start off today by uh, opening up the discussion on your diverse background. Um, You've got a lot of roles and titles throughout the years and I've come to know you as the architect starting from a long time ago. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your educational background work and leading up to today's role as a counsellor? It's an interesting journey. I think learning architecture at Sydney Uni gave me the foundations to really question and really be creative in terms of what we're being told or what we're being taught. And that's something I've applied, not just in architecture in terms of innovation and creativity and the work we do in practice, but more so how I've applied it into my life. So it's something where I've always been fascinated in terms of how we can be pushing the boundaries but doing so as a profession to really solve the most challenging, the most wicked problems that we face in our society. And I learned quite early on through my time at Sydney University by being able to experience working with participatory planning processes and design from working with school children to design uh, high school at Parramatta to working in the slums of South Africa and India and even Colombia allowed me to really have a different view that architecture wasn't just about the renders, it wasn't just about the glossy photos, it wasn't just about design, but really about a process of how we can bring people along this journey with us to design something for people that's really addressing their needs. That's amazing because I think I can really see that strong passion for social inclusion, climate resilience, um, particularly in our urban communities. And I think maybe bridging the gap here, what's the key difference between what you would have been doing in practice in architecture to what you've able to be now participate in? I think being in an elected position allows me to not only engage in really exciting and inspiring policies, especially future-focused policies, for Sydney and our city, but it's enabled me to really 
And hopefully something I'll continue doing in terms of my leadership ambition is to bridge that gap between our community and the end users of good design with the process. And so for me, it's allowed me to make decisions, to critique, to comment, to actually provide suggestions and to find solutions together, doing so with the community, but then also balancing the expert knowledge, the technical skills that come from the architecture and urban planning professions. Amazing, because I think uh, you've participated in many, many notable projects. And I think in the recent times, you've got city making projects that addressed affordability, um, social housing, smart infrastructure, public spaces and circular economy, to even co-living models and uh, with Sydney Siders to relieve housing stress in the city of Sydney, um, which is probably a topic close to your heart, particularly as we see you participate in the UN uh, Sustainable Development Solutions uh, programs and in your recent appearance in the Copenhagen program. Can you tell us a bit more about that particular um, address where the topic really was quite amazing to hear because it's titled as Next Gen Architecture and Activism and How to Make an Impact. Having done a lot of this work, whether it's uh, attending architecture conferences and architecture events and exhibitions globally, to also then be involved in the United Nations and that system that has a broader remit in terms of sustainable development goals by 2030. It's been fantastic actually seeing that connection come together for the first time, which was at the International Union of Architects Congress in Copenhagen a few months ago. And that really allowed me to rethink where we're at as a profession. It was the first time that cities and city making became more prominent in not just discussion, but showcasing that work that architects can be leading on. It's something that I think, at least in Australia, engineering professions and companies have led on and really have embraced the idea that city making can be a discipline and can also be a market in terms of business. And at the same time, it was incredible seeing climate action groups that work with city governments and cities also be able to present. Normally, you'll find that at the UN Habitat, World Urban Forums, and other arenas that showcase less architecture and more policy making and more decision making. So my keynote in Copenhagen really was about my move to, into alternative practice which is being a politician, but also in terms of the, the making I get to do now, which is this city. I like to say that I only now have one project, which is Sydney. I don't have as many projects I would have used to worked on in traditional practice. And that's something that gives me a lot of joy and is very rewarding, but to also make sure that I'm focused on the actual political and policy outcomes, which is still very new to me and something that I'm learning. Um, and it's great to be able to showcase that that's where we're heading. And as a profession, to have received the response that I did over there was incredible in terms of just recognising that there are architects around the world who also see beyond just traditional architecture and really relish in the role of, say, government architects, city architects, who wouldn't have been recognised 
10 years ago as being architects and the work that they were producing and how it benefited uh, society and the impacts it would have made to environmental organisations now hiring architects because they're critical to solving climate action within our cities. That's amazing because I think you've really touched on a point that many of our listeners might be very interested in is that we all might be starting off as architects and one day we really want to be able to shift into different arenas to continue to make an impact. And I think you really balance out advocacy and politics really well because your role day-to-day is political in its nature but doesn't uh, steer away from your true core values of what you advocate for. I've thoroughly enjoyed your every public appearance because it really sparks conversation and allows us to also support you and drive forward. And I think looping back to what you said earlier on, particularly where the panel that you participated in recently was an expert panel with diverse backgrounds from science, business and politics and it is absolutely amazing to be able to see architects now participating in those discussions. What kind of advice and thoughts have you got for our general audience on how we as architects could continue to really capitalise on our profession and all our, you know, ability to solve problems um, in really making a difference beyond, let's say, built fabrics of buildings of smaller scales work day to day, let's say? The theme of the UIA Congress, and it was done in part as for Copenhagen, which was named the UNESCO World Capital for Architecture, the theme was leave no one behind. And I had the chance at a private dinner to actually address the architects from Europe, but also um, from Africa and the region, to really call out that we need to understand why we have such a theme. And such a theme comes about because architects have, we have left people behind. I think we have firstly to recognise that before we can actually move forward. There's no point saying these are all the incredible solutions we can be doing uh, to look at the housing crisis, to look at net zero carbon, to look at how we can work more with our community to be able to have these very visionary ideas without actually first saying, in fact, where's to blame? In some ways, our industry needs to be reflective. And once we understand what we've done to create the inequalities, to create the unsustainabilities that we face, then we can actually start solving the problems. And it was great that it had such a strong focus on the next generation in terms of younger people, in terms of children and their exposure to architecture. And it's something that Australia can definitely learn in terms of how a lot of these global cities, including in Copenhagen, have centres for architecture and something I'm working on to create a centre for architecture here in Sydney. Because you get exposed at a very young age in terms of what good design, design excellence looks like, but also in terms of the vocation of being an architect. What I do want to happen in terms of our university students, and a lot of this also comes down to education, of course, in terms of how we can create that change in terms of our profession. I really would love one day that architecture students or high school students are choosing architecture to study at university not because they want to become architects, 
but because they want to become city councillors, that they want to be in a decision-making position to design that future city. And it's something that I hope the profession and the institutions in terms of the universities will work together to really expand the types of exciting jobs, but the types of service that we can be doing to support our community needs um, and at the same time really profile why architects are important and why they're needed. Absolutely, because I think that's an amazing way to frame what you do day to day and really how we can make a difference to our community because I really like the line that you said, leave no one behind, because our profession, you know, at times is can be considered highly privileged and the kind of power we have with our ability to participate in our built environment is unlimited almost because, you know, we can be in different roles to really make a difference. So as you talk about that, how do we have you share with us a bit more on what you just talked about in leading the public, almost educating them, taking on a journey, and then for them to also recognise that there is a place for experts and expert advice, but on the contrary, the community voices from ground up can be at times emotional, but how do we then help support them to even voice their opinion in a possible objective way to participate in public planning? We often exhibit our DAs in public when we're lodging them and many of the times we have stakeholder engagement but we may notice that community groups are struggling to participate or you know may come across as emotional and we want to talk about how there's room for both sides to really bring together the gap and you're beginning to establish a framework for that in your day-to-day role as a councillor in the city. I think you're spot on in terms of drawing on that point that there is a lot of emotion involved Uh, not just in terms of as a proponent, as a developer, working with an architect, as a team, a lot of emotion involved in terms of the ongoing and the more urban impacts that we'll have on um, the neighbourhood in terms of uh, the neighbours who might be next door to a new development. I think having been in this position Having been an outsider, I've never been interested in politics. And for me to grapple with the politics of being a councillor is something that I'm still working on. It's still something that challenges me and it's not intuitive. But because I do come to this role almost as an outsider, almost as somebody who understands the complexity of the systems, it's really allowed me to say and to recognise that these systems in place, whether political, whether planning, whether to do with how we engage the community, they've been designed specifically to exclude people. They've been done so so that only those who have the technical knowledge can engage. And what that creates in our community is then really nimbyism. It's opposition. It's protest. It's stopping projects from happening without going into the nuances of why something shouldn't happen, without coming up with new outcomes 
new possibilities, better solutions, better ideas. And it's something that is not at the fault of our community. Our residents are empowered with the tools, but let alone empowered to actually have the right means to really engage meaningfully. And so it's something that last year, very soon found myself in positions where development after development came through to my council committee, which is a transport heritage environment and planning committee. And being able to listen to residents who disagreed with what was being proposed, what had been designed, and to really understand where they're coming from. For me, I was exposed to, you know, a good example is North Everly, which is our state government, state significant development that's owned by Transport for New South Wales. And seeing the community, the only tool that they had was actually to protest against it. There was no other avenues in terms of options to engage in a way that would have created a dialogue. And I spoke to the government architect, Abby Galvin, about this issue. And her response was very much, we need to ask why. We need to ask why people are opposing development, a particular project, a particular site, and to really tease out the reasons behind that decision. It's okay to say no. And I also think it's okay to say yes. In Sydney, here now, there's now a growing movement, a new organisation called YIMBY and YIMBYism that is taking traction. They're all about introducing increased housing supply and housing stock and more development. But again, where they're missing out on the grey in between the nuance that would actually talk about what is good development, what is good design in terms of envelope and bulk um, and massing to all the way down to the urban design and the interface to the public realm and how it relates to people's aspirations but also to their needs as a community, how we can actually create better comfort, how we can actually use the environment to do so, how we can use Indigenous knowledge uh, and design with country. These things become very important in terms of shifting the dialogue because the dialogues are what creates the types of submissions, the types of actionable tools for our community to be able to at least engage with government systems on a level where they will listen and respond meaningfully. That's amazing because I think more often than not, everyone's quick to judge, quick to respond. And to your point, saying yes and no is much easier. But in order to have progress, we really need to have that dialogue. And I think as architects, we're very versed in having a dialogue whether it's the design process, iteration, communicating with our clients, going through planning approval. And I think because we have that ability to speak in different languages, dare I say, in the design language, in the planning language, in the technical language to get buildings built, with that, you've once talked about your passion project. 
using that citizen scientist model to really empower our community and general public to begin to pick up those tools to engage with this process. Could you share with our audience listeners a bit more? Yes, so this is really the biggest gap that I've observed and experienced uh, being in public office. And it's something that as an architect, I really have been working on this year to develop. And it's called citizen architecture and involves very much looking at other professions, understanding that other professions have very, and rightly so, expert knowledge and expert skills that's valued by our community, whether it's science and scientists and law and lawyers. If we look at citizen science, it's actually about engaging the public within scientific discovery where everyone without having studied a science degree without working for a science agency or engaging research can still impart data and knowledge based on their passions and interests. You have to remember that the residents, the community members are very passionate. They're very much interested, invested in what's happening in their local communities, in their urban environments, where they live, and they have a stake and they have a very valid stake that they should be pursuing. And I think if we understand and look at it from a perspective of passion rather than from a perspective of they are NIMBYs or because they do not want any change, that might not necessarily be the case if we engage in a way that's, that's actually collaborative and one that gives them agency. We can look at citizen science in terms of the depth and the breadth of research um, and investigations that's happened and how people feel empowered to contribute because they understand that contributing to a certain research project or a certain advancement of scientific knowledge. I think the same can be done for the advancement of architectural knowledge in this sense. And how we would do this through citizen architecture is to have citizen architects. Now they're the people, similar to how the legal profession has legal aid, everyone should have access to justice and access to the legal system if they find themselves in that position. It should be accessible and we can create that inclusion by making sure our architects provide case support on specific sites and developments, these projects which are controversial, these projects which are impassioning our people, and for them to engage in a non-biased way the technical aspects of the design and to be provided with different options. And in some ways, this is actually just about how we serve the community and how we basically remove those barriers that have prevented our community from meaningfully participating within a discourse on architecture and development. And by doing so, we empower them because, like I say, they're still entitled to say no, but now they will be able to explain why. They're entitled to say yes to a development. Or they're entitled to say, actually, in my submission, I'm going to put these 
reasons in that will make a project better based on good urban design principles, based on what I've been told by a young architect or a graduate of architecture in terms of their options. It would be very much no different to a crit setting at a university studio and to engage in a manner that also most importantly promotes and showcases why our profession is important and why our community can support us in doing that work together. It's great to hear. I think I can't wait to see that get realised very soon because I think, to your point, having access is the most powerful thing you can give someone in general. So I think it's really playing with that power and imbalance. So, you know, at times that might turn into privilege, but really making sure that everyone has equal access to then have a very productive dialogue, particularly, like you said, for controversial projects, which everyone can then participate in a dialogue that takes a project forward rather than, you know, providing emotional feedback, which absolutely appreciated, but are hard to process, isn't it? So I think this is great because I think we've touched on several points that really explore today's topic on the value of architects, what we do, where we can participate in. Maybe to really hone in on your day-to-day role. As a registered architect, you're now a counsellor. Would you be able to share with us a snippet of what you might do day-to-day that is very diverse from Monday to Friday as, you know, most people are probably curious what our counsellors do, (laughs) you know, because we see you in public but we probably don't fully appreciate um, the work behind the scenes, you know, and in front of media and even just day-to-day in our communities. I have a very specific role that I play for the city government. Um, I'm an independent as part of the Lord Mayor's team and that has allowed me to really occupy a space that I have really relished in and it's being able to not just chair the passion issues I'm interested in for our city and that includes going to a lot of meetings uh, for council and chairing the, the debate and the discussion that goes on, but also having a very clear idea in terms of how I can communicate back to our community in a public way to stand up in the council chamber and to simply say, this is why I made this decision, this is why I'm supporting or not supporting a decision. And I think that talks about how we as architects have always had the power of communication visually in presentations, orally, but also in terms of the physical transformation once projects are built. I think that's the really the superpower our profession holds because we're not just involved in policies that end up on our shelf that no one ends up reading. We don't just deal with reports or create concepts or create strategies where it is theoretical. Ours is a practice that really is built, is tangible, it's physical. We can smell, touch, feel it. We can experience the built environment. And I think the power of seeing uh, urban city transformation 
allows our community to really recognise and value the need for good design and architecture. And that's something that I do on a, on a day-to-day basis in terms of, yes, it is about the meetings, but also there's constant development and that physical change. And people can see and actually experience our city in a different way. And we've seen this through the past 18 years of the Lord Mayor's leadership. For me, I also chair our local pedestrian cycling and traffic calming committee. Other councils call it just a traffic committee, but for the city of Sydney, our focus is on traffic calming to create more spaces for people, to create the fine grain, human scaled, urban places that our citizens deserve. And for, for me, a lot of that work happens in the background. It is technical, it is a technical community, it is an external committee that com- consists of representatives from Transport for New South Wales, other government bodies like those who have a land ownership across um, the local government area, as well as community representatives such as those advocating for more walking and more cycling. A lot of the work happens in the background. A lot of the work happens where a good example would be the city officers having a recommendation to uh, remove a car park between two residential driveways because that space actually isn't big enough to fit a car. And they propose to put motorcycles in there. And instead of putting motorcycles, I was able to work collaboratively with city staff, but also with our community and to propose that why don't we actually green that part of our streets? We have to remember the majority of our public spaces are made out of roads for cars. And we really need to be very much prioritizing how we can take that public space back and provide it back to our community. Of course, that will provide some water drainage and management, water sensitive urban design, fresh air, but also create the types of urban forests um, and environments that we're looking for in our city. Another example would be, you know, I am for motorbikes. Um, Recently working with, uh, in Redfern, in the community, allowing for the provision of motorbikes in a laneway that's associated with um, motorcycle repair shops, despite a resident wanting access and wanting the motorbikes removed because of their need to access a residential driveway. And that, for me, is not a technical traffic decision. It's a decision that actually understands the historical fabric of what these long-term motorcycle repair shops have added to the fine grain and the activation and the industrial areas to our inner city and that they provide character. They provide urban character that is much loved by our community. And these types of more softer interventions are still equally important in terms of the types of urban spaces and the type of city we want to create. And what we've ended up doing is being able to prioritise that access to driveway, but also allowing to formalise the provision of these motorcycles to park in this laneway so that people, when they do look down that laneway, understand actually this is a place of commerce. 
This is a place of repair and a place of industry that's related to the culture of the workers that work there. Mm. That's great to hear because it's such a contrast. I think we might be very familiar with one of your roles but may not be with the others and I think both are very, very critical and I think it's absolutely great to see the achievements by um, City of Sydney in the recent years and the past decades and what you describe as would be the, the clearest example is the George Street transformation and that light rail and, you know, if you build it, they come and everyone's really enjoying being able to walk down George Street without seeing buses or dodging them anymore. So I think in closing, we want to wrap up a very key topic that you touched on. I think, you know, it's great to hear about your advocacy roles, you know, your call for the need for activism in architecture, because I think you do a lot of raising awareness and, you know, you rally for support for better future. And I think as an architect speaking to another, (laughs) you touched on our very, very strong strength of communication, whether it's visually, through presentations or through verbal kind of um, presentations in public. I myself here work for Bait Smart and we also take visioning very seriously because uh, we've collectively collaborated with the city as well to look at how we can transform city spaces. And I think maybe sharing some thoughts with our you know, broader audience, you know, everyone participates in city making through various scales, whether it's small buildings, like you said, the fine ground from as small as a bike shop, it could be a retail tenancy, it could be you know, a, a building upgrade where we look at the lobby transformation. There's no size that's too small or too big in our city. And maybe sharing with us your thoughts and what you really aspire to see architects in our community also join forces with you to kind of transform. How would you begin to share thoughts with them on what they can do to also make a difference without being a politician (laughs) and being the decision maker at the very top or, you know, at the table? Because at times we might forget we need to continue to be critical and rigorous about our work and not just provide a plan that can be approved. I might just talk about George Street very quickly. Uh, we have Jan Gale coming to Sydney later this year to see that transformation. Because of COVID, uh, that vision uh, has happened. The light rail's been at full capacity in recent months only uh, because of the pandemic. And so this will be the actually first chance for him to see his strategy, which he started back in 2008 with the Lord Mayor. It's a recognition, of course, to understand that city making takes years, if not decades, to achieve. It doesn't meet the four year political cycle. And it's very important that we are creating and actually taking the actions we do now for 2050. Last year, councils just approved our 2050 strategic vision and plan that came about through a citizen's jury or a citizens' assembly where citizens actually came into consensus on what would be the most important priorities for our city in 2050 and that has now been mandated in terms of what we look at when we make these decisions to make sure that we are doing so with the credibility of our community behind us. George Street is incredible, yes, because of the pedestrianisation and the public domain upgrades with the our award-winning Zahn's designed street furniture, but also because of the light rail and the light rail canopies. What people don't know is that as part of that transformation, the city also invested 
a huge drain underneath all of George Street that would provide grey water recycling capabilities so that all of the residential and commercial buildings along George Street can have access to recycled water. These are the types of transformation. Some are seen, some are, are hidden, but this is kind of the work where it is actually so interesting and I love doing the work because it allows our people to actually live in this community where it is sustainable, but is also designed well so that it is about um, people and the places in between buildings. A lot of my work has outside of traditional practice, outside of working from for large practices, have focused on how we design for dignity, how we actually make the process, make the outcomes to have the types of urban solutions are ones where people feel that they have been included. I think we actually should even move beyond design excellence in terms of our understanding and policies, which, by the way, is globally renowned in terms of Sydney's concepts and ability to engage with independent experts in that, that area to make decisions on design advisory panels or local planning panels or design excellence panels. But I think we can actually go and move to a system where, yes, we listen to the experts, but we also have community experts. So I wonder how community excellence look like, what that means for our community. And finally, to say that architecture is a profession that allows us to really connect outside of our industry. I know it's very hard for us to move beyond our bubble, but all of my passion projects that I've worked on, which have been outside traditional firm work, I've had greater traction and interest and excitement from those who are not architects or from those who are not exposed to architecture. The United Nations being able to speak at the UN General Assembly on the same day uh, the former US president spoke and delivered his national address. It was so incredible to see global leaders interested in sustainable cities and developments and interested in architecture. I think when architects move beyond our circles, we find a lot of other industry, a lot of kind of decision-making leadership actors who are willing to listen to us, who are willing to not just share the values and share the types of visions that we're working towards in terms of sustainability, but actually invest and actually promote and showcase. And it's something that all architects should be very aware of and um, to ensure that our importance, but our need, our skills are shared. Great. Thanks, William. It's been a joy to listen to you and to have you so candidly share your experience. And I think in general, like all of us, we look forward to seeing you in public next time, making a difference and inspiring us how to make a real difference in our community and focusing on real impact. And I think I loved your closing line on really we should all think about how we can design for dignity. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. 
Thank you so much for listening and thank you to our host, Sally Sue, and our guest, architect H.Y. William Chan, architect and counsellor at the City of Sydney. Thank you so much for sharing your stories about how an architectural background can help shape our cities. We can't wait to see what you do next in the future. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudie McCarthy and the Imagine production team was Sally Sue and Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.